Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Friday, January 9th, 2015. I recorded here some time ago that something bad has recently happened in my life. I'll say what it is now. I've been let go from my job, and I'm now unemployed. This is at least the fourth time since 2002 that this campaign has pushed me out of my career. But this time it's much worse, because in December 2012, it became clear that the government is a party to this Maynellian Holocaust and it has amplified it well beyond anything Maynell described. It knows that I want to sue it for the enormous compensation that it owes me, so it's poisoned lawyers against me and also poisoned old friends. To discredit my complaint, it could easily arrange to have me hired somewhere, but it can also have things both ways, so it could just as easily choose to keep going and also poison prospective employers against me, perhaps to maneuver me out of the industry, out of the city, out of anything really, and more importantly, into anything. However this job search turns out, it bears repeating that to a fair mind, the only correct resolution of this Holocaust is to satisfy me, which means, among other things, not only paying me the enormous sum I mentioned, but also publicly destroying the lives of many senior perpetrators in this professional establishment. Meanwhile, the loss of my job has isolated me even more, so that the new Catch-22 in what passes for my life is that the only way left for me to interact with people is to leave the refuge of my apartment and step outside into the public theater of this psychological war, where I am constantly having to cope with disturbing body language and disturbing looks, many of which involve a variety of defeating smiles. I want to talk now about these destructive smiles. A couple of days ago, to try to get some work done, I went to a cafe just a couple of blocks from my apartment. I had been avoiding it for the more than two years that I've lived in this city of evil, because from outside it seemed popular with the corporation next door, the one that mobbed me in the fall of 2012, and that has ordered the gang-stalking of me ever since. But I really ought to choose this cafe to work in today, because I should spread the time I spend outside across as many different cafes as possible, so as to minimize the time I spend at any one of them. For the longer I stay at one cafe, 
the more its staff are made anxious by my presence, even though I'm just working silently. Meanwhile, other patrons can stay for hours at a time and hardly be noticed, let alone resented. Anyway, I step inside this new place and hope, as usual, that I'll be spared any subtle nastiness if I just hunker down and quietly work. But the hope is promptly dashed. As soon as I enter, the staff look at me with appalled hostility, as if to say, Oh God, you dare to come in here. The air around them must be an invisible molasses. That's how reluctantly they approach the counter to take my order. I, as usual, pretend not to notice anything, and proceed with the transaction as bravely and casually as I can. Then I take a table and start working. Soon it's lunchtime, and more customers arrive. The place being small, pretty much all of them notice me, and it doesn't take long for me to figure out, from the ambient conversation, that most, if not all of them, are indeed from the criminal corporation next door. When the place fills up, the proprietor asks some of us to share our tables, to make room for others. A young adult male moves his stuff over to my table and sits across from me, though he has to leave something on the floor by the table he's just left, something that belongs to him. I don't want to say here what it is. We then work in polite silence as the bustle grows around us. Then two young women take the table on my right and converse with one another in the moaningly haughty way of certain sorority girls, obviously presuming that they're hotly desirable to males in the vicinity. The boy seated across from me typically groomed to maintain thick boundaries with other males, but to exhibit a great need for females, tries to engage them in a bit of small talk, on the pretext that he'll later need to retrieve his thingamajig lying on the floor next to them. They pause their conversation for a moment and glance at him askance, but to signal to him that he is beneath them, they say nothing. Instead, they keep their noses pointed ever so slightly in the direction of growth of their parents' stock portfolios, and they resume their oozing banter in the same loud and airy tone of pampered privilege. Being, as I said, typically groomed for masochistic submission to females, the boy predictably fails to note that his dignity has taken a hit. The moment reminds me of a comment an old het male friend of mine once made a long time ago in the first mobbing institution, a sister of this corporation. Before I ever confided to anyone my experience of feminine invasiveness there, he told me that when in public he tries to make a point of ignoring any females who seem to feel entitled to male attention. I wish that more men did that, and that this boy would understand that 
he would recover some of his lost dignity if he simply ignored the girls, as my friend and I like to do to haughty persons, and as it is the right of every man to do, even if the country seems to think that the right to snub belongs only to women. In fact, when the boy finally starts packing up to leave, he doesn't say to the girls with simple common sense, could you please hand me the thingamajig I left next to you? Instead, get this, he gets on his knees, crouches under their table, and struggles repeatedly to grab the thing between their feet, evidently not minding that he is now, quite literally, groveling. This dynamic of male self-abasement to women is a signature disease of the ivy class, where it passes for gender equality. Worthlessness next to women is so ingrained in such heartbreakingly ill-het males that they go around forming groups such as The Good Men Project. However well-intentioned that publication may actually be, Imagine the uproar that would ensue over a group that called itself the Good Blacks Project, the Good Latinos Project, the Good Jews Project, or, heaven forbid, the Good Women Project. I sometimes wonder if the internalized misandry might somehow be felt to make up for the aggressions of other men against women but not as much as I wonder if some of that aggression might in fact be driven by an unconscious urge to avenge the misandry. If only a homosexual could exclude himself from this sorry culture. Actually, in the voices of these two girls, I hear not only the sickly fullness of projected self-absorption, but also the edgy tone of a gloating smirk. It comes and goes once or twice, a third time, enough times to tell me I'm not imagining it. It's not the first time I've heard that taunting drawl from some of the wealthy women of this corporation. They're the ones who seem most determined to discredit and punish me for having dared to complain about pestering and harassment. Some of them are sitting at other tables in this cafe, outright giggling about something that obviously delights them. But I can tell that although they're aware of my presence, just now they're not focused on me, not trying to rub anything in. Whereas the tone of these two on my right manages with audible pleasure both to refer to the Holocaust that the community is keeping up against me and also somehow to say, without saying it, ha ha, we're all raping you, and you can't do anything about it. I got quite a few such gloating smirks from my colleagues in late 2012, and even from some of my subordinates, as the mobbing in the corporation came to a head. At the time, I couldn't understand why so many of those unnerving smiles had a foreboding quality, why some of them seemed to be saying, just wait till you see the hell that we've got in store for you. 
In fact, I now recall a smirk that I received not two years ago, but more than eight years ago, when I was still in the miserable first mobbing corporation. A smirk of startling malignancy, which I'd gotten in the corridor from one of the senior members of my division, whom I'd never actually conversed with before. Only now can I look back at that moment across more than eight years, and finally understand what powers they had to subvert and sabotage my life. And only a couple of months ago did I learn that before I had even arrived at this second corporation in 2012, it had already used its power to begin gang-stalking another target, who, like me, is trying to blow the whistle on its malfeasance over which large sums of money and the reputations of many people are at stake. It's now clear that the constituencies of these corporations, like the rest of this city, no doubt, and perhaps like the rest of the country, are partitioned into the in-crowd and the out-crowd. The in-crowd has so much power that it can not only do whatever the hell it wants, but can also suppress all public discussion of its ongoing crimes, which is much more amazing and horrifying. It knows about, approves of, abets, arranges, and funds gang-stalking, mobbing, conspiracy, discrediting, psychological torture, and whatever other crimes its secret apparatus can perform. It is, moreover, brazenly proud of this mockery that it's made of law, country, and constitution, though the perversion doesn't stop it from chanting loudly that precisely the law and the constitution are what make the country better than any other. This class, this in-crowd, was expected to show serious respect for my rank when I was in the corporation in late 2012. But now I see that I never stood a chance of being accepted into it. Neither I nor the rest of the ethnicity I'm cursed with, unless maybe we censor and abase ourselves while others vilify us freely. We belong to the out-crowd, and it's now clear that for years they've kept us carefully in the dark about the sordid underworld they control. When some of us fall into that carefully constructed abyss, they sit next to us, as they're doing now in this small cafe, and gloat over our helplessness. Many of them are murderously Zionist, if not also murderously imperialist. They know that in the past I made what I thought were strong criticisms of Israel and of this country. Only years later, post-2012, have I understood that that's been yet another reason why I've been targeted, and that the criticisms were nowhere near strong enough. Observe, for example, how Professor Stephen Salata can lose his job at Urbana-Champaign this year for tweeting the F-word over Israel's slaughter 
of thousands of Gazans. Whereas Eddie Kohler of Harvard and David Mazier of Stanford can co-author and publish an academic paper entitled Get Me Off Your Effing Mailing List and print the F-word in it hundreds of times and not only remain unpunished, but continue to enjoy the establishment's amused support. You see, if you're in the in-crowd, you may use a formal venue to vent your rage in print with hundreds of obscenities over a mailing list subscription. But if you dare to vent it just once over Israel's war crimes, you're fired. In any case, I figured out only post-Holocaust that my persecutors passionately want to believe, and to make others believe, that I'll become physically violent at the mere mention of Israel. So, naturally, some of the young colluders in this cafe talk loudly about their Zionism, or their Jewishness, or whatever they think might inflame me, also in the tone of a gloating smile. And occasionally they turn around to look at me, presumably hoping that steam is coming out of my ears. They've all been trying to get a rise out of me in public since December 2012, but the gloating in this cafe doesn't hold a candle to the gleeful anticipation I saw at one point last year, when I had reason to fear that my enemies were trying to discredit me psychiatrically and force me into an asylum. The spying authorities almost certainly interpreted my panic to mean that I was suicidal. Suicidal right then and there. So, instead of making things better for me by coming clean, confessing their crimes, giving me access to courts and lawyers so I could at last, after a decade, obtain justice, they did everything they could to make things worse by taking the city to something like DEFCON 2. The city, for its part, became dutifully wild with hysteria. And in case this isn't enough to show that everything was being done to try to push a person to suicide, during that particular episode I passed three different people who smirked at me with open schadenfreude over the prospect of my committing suicide, one of them with a brazen grin. Almost as horrifying were the smirks I got from a, a couple of people who work physically very close to me, and obviously have my apartment under constant surveillance. The first came after I tried and failed to secure a lawyer. The second came one day, months later, after I just broke down crying with despair in my bedroom. The smirks were exquisite. A similar malignity was shown by a police officer last year, while I was sitting in a cafe. The large glass windows gave a wide-open view of the street, and he just paced back and forth on the sidewalk outside, looking straight at me with a taunting grin. In all these cases, the message is, Ha ha, we can commit all these atrocities against you, and you can't do anything about it. But getting back to the young boy groveling next to me in this cafe, 
He reminds me that the monster whom I took for a confidant is also a disciple of the school of male masochism. I infer this from a couple of things I saw him do and heard him say, though I obviously didn't appreciate his derangement, let alone his psychopathy or their consequences, until far too late. Recall that the monster gave me to believe that he cares about me and wants to help me, but who all along had a way of making me feel immature for wanting justice, who more than once tried to get me to return to the nasty family that I was trying to get away from, and that I didn't yet know was in touch behind my back with the first mobbing institution, if not also with him, and who persuaded me to blame myself for the abuses I've endured over the last twelve years, even as he himself was covertly involved in them. The unkindly laughter in the voices of these two girls reminds me of a number of moments I experienced with him, moments which in hindsight are remarkable, because in them neither he nor I realized that he was revealing something about himself. The first that comes to mind happened many years ago when I complained to him about the racist treatment I was getting at the first mobbing institution. I can't give his exact response here without giving away my ethnicity, so what I'll say is that if I were black, then his words would have been something like, Come on now, Anthony. You have to understand that it's reasonable for people to treat you with suspicion. You're black. His tone was matched by the puzzling smirk on his face. As usual, I didn't understand what it meant. At the time, he had me so convinced that he cared about me that such a brief lapse into racist candor couldn't put a dent in my trust. The trick probably works better on someone raised by my parents. But actually, I think I prefer my father's racism to his. At least my father was explicit when insulting my mother's ethnicity. It left no doubt about where he stands. In another moment around the same time, which is many years ago now, the monster mentioned in passing that people say I hold a grudge for too long. The words were an incidental side thought that popped up in the middle of something else he was saying. And treachery being unimaginable, I thought he must have meant that people must be saying that I hold a grudge for too long, and not that he had actually discussed with such people my grudge against them, a grudge that has turned out to be far, far more well-founded than I could possibly have imagined at the time. Only now do I see that I should have stopped him in his tracks and questioned him about those telling words. Another moment, which is revealing only now, took place in late 2010, just weeks after I moved back to the East Coast. The lead-up to it began with the disturbing problems in my new workplace, the school where I'd just started teaching. It had quickly become so frighteningly hostile toward me that I lost no time looking for another job. But the only option now left for me 
was to try to get back into the industry that mobbed me out in 2002 at the instigation of the quasi-prostitute. Here on the East Coast, that industry is vast, so I thought I had a chance of finding a job somewhere outside her sphere of influence. To start making connections, I attended some of the informal public meetings of that large professional community. That was when I began to notice what I call the first-time-good, second-time-bad pattern. The first time I would meet someone, he or she would chat with me normally, sometimes even for an hour or two, would get to know my skills, get a sense of my personality, would like me, and sometimes would like me enough to say they're impressed with me or give me their business card and encourage me to apply for a job with their company or their friends. But when, days or weeks or months later, I would encounter them a second time, they would suddenly hyperventilate, tremble, or sneer at me, or, as happened at least twice, would gesture with their body that they want me out of their sight. One job interviewer was so panicked that I could hear him hyperventilating over the phone. I had never met him before and had no idea how he knew me. Later, I found out he was a close colleague of the quasi-prostitute's husband. All this was only one of the three prongs of a renewed assault on my life. Remember, the other two prongs involved my new landlord and my new employer, the Bizarre School. And it was only post-Holocaust that I discovered, to my dismay, that all along the school and the landlord were actually friends. After learning that, it didn't take long for me to figure out that not only had someone been listening to my private speech in my apartment, but that that agent was conveying it to the school including things I said which the school would not have wanted anyone else to hear. As soon as I was back on its campus, the school reacted non-verbally but very viciously. Their hatred affected me badly and also confused me because I still couldn't figure out what was going on. In all, I was watching my reputation burn up like a wildfire, and I thought it was all about my being said to be likely to sue. So I did the only thing I could do, the only thing left for me to do. I called up various people in the first mobbing institution, people with whom my relations had long ago become strained, and I tried to ingratiate myself with them. I even, incredibly, phoned up the husband of the quasi-prostitute and fairly kissed his behind. Yes, a citizen of the United States calls up the aliens, whose ethnicity nevertheless places them well above him in power, privilege, and protection of law, who were able to mob him out of two jobs, now four jobs, and abases himself in a desperate attempt to stop their assassination. I didn't know what else to do. If they needed my assurance that I wasn't going to sue, then I'd do my best to give it to them. But giving it did not improve feelings about me, so I thought I just had to try harder to show the people in these professional communities 
that I'm not going to sue. And now for the revealing moment with the monster. When I told him about how deferential I had been with my persecutors, he did something that I don't think he'd ever done before, and has never done since. From the depths he sang out in praise, Good for you, Anthony. You finally understood that you should be deferential to them. What made that moment what it was, was the smile of warm approval in his voice. It was the only time he ever gave it to me, ever, and it made me feel that I had matured in some way. Only now do I look back and think, I am the victim and they are the criminals, so why is he praising my submission to them? At the time, the only thinkable answer was, because he cares for me because he wants to help me. It was not even thinkable to me that behind my back he was making the unthinkable thinkable to everyone around me. Fast forward to 2012, and I start hearing a new and more disturbing note in his voice. It was in the midst of the second mobbing in this corporation next door and I was describing to him the looks of fear and hatred that I was getting from people I'd never met before. Now that's something you can just ignore, he suggested to me with a confident smile in his voice. You can just let those insulting looks roll off your shoulder. This is workplace mobbing, the beginnings of a Manelian holocaust a program of persecution intended to make the target physically ill, mentally ill, suicidal, or even homicidal. So why is he dismissing my complaints with a smile in his voice? The campaign progressed so quickly that just a month into the job I found myself murmuring about quitting. At first he said he thought it was fine for me to do so. But when the escalating campaign made me want to quit more seriously, he changed his tune and, incredibly in hindsight, began to scoff. And why do you want to leave? These are not good reasons to leave. Finally, I became so disturbed by the insanity at work that I told the monster I needed to talk to a lawyer whereupon he promptly dissuaded me, saying, even if you try to sue, they can, you know, just beat you by throwing more and more money at the problem. Again, what makes my flesh still crawl is not so much his words, but the slimy smile in his voice. I didn't even stop to ask myself, why is my so-called friend who is not a lawyer, presuming to give me legal advice? Why is he trying to dissuade me from taking action to stop the psychological terrorism in the workplace? This is the man who on more than one occasion told me that I should stand up more for my dignity. Why is he now telling me not to? At one point, he mentioned my rage in passing whereas I hadn't expressed any rage. 
post-Holocaust, of course, I live with rage every day and suppress it heroically. But at that point of the fall of 2012, I had not said anything to the monster about being enraged, had not said anything in a rage, had not yet even gotten exasperated. I'd been supremely calm when talking to him about the tormenting dynamics that were getting out of control in the workplace. So why was he talking about my rage before I was feeling any? Meanwhile, to plan my escape from this nightmarish corporation, I asked someone outside it for a job. At that point, he was my only hope for getting out, and it would still be several weeks before I discovered that he had already been very much a part of what was being done to me behind the scenes. Incidentally, this person once told me openly that he's had thoughts of killing people. But he belongs to a liked ethnicity, so no holocaust for him. Strangely, he said he'd give me a job only if I stated openly in the corporation that the mobbing was my reason for wanting to leave it. I told him that that was the one thing I must not do. Otherwise, the workplace would surely poison my name elsewhere. Remember, I have to do everything I can to fight off rumors that I am some kind of sue-happy complainer. But he insisted only more angrily and raised his voice at me. If I want him to give me a job, first I have to blow the whistle on what's being done to me. So, I approached the one person in the corporation whom I thought I could trust. Let's call him Charles, and told him in the privacy of his office that the workplace had become hostile toward me and that unfortunately I have to look for another job. In response, Charles smiled a smile of warmest friendliness and proceeded to tell me that there was no hysteria surrounding me in the workplace that I was imagining it all, and that I should seek psychiatric help for what he flatly implied were paranoid delusions. By the way, note carefully that this implies that if I were to see a so-called mental health professional, the corporation, and now the government, is confident that it would be able to make such a character say about me whatever needs to be said to discredit, if not destroy me. By that time, late November of 2012, the hate campaign had been roiling for three months, and as usual, I smiled at it bravely when I was actually at work. But that Thanksgiving holiday gave me time and space to take in both the horror and the outrage of it all. I had no friends, had nowhere to go, and in spite of my heroic niceness, everyone at work was treating me like a monstrous pariah. The isolation distressed me so much that in my indignation I thought again what I had already begun to think after my enemies began assassinating my character again when I returned to the East Coast in 2010. Namely, that neither death nor any corporal chastisement would be a sufficient punishment to inflict on the quasi-prostitute. 
and that by the time I got done telling this corporation's community my side of the story, which she and her supporters had suppressed for a full decade, she would not be able to walk anywhere in her city without the general public's wanting to spit on her. Within seconds of my having had this thought, my cell phone started ringing furiously, ringing off the hook. When I looked at the phone, I was astonished to see that the caller was none other than the quasi-prostitute's husband. What does he want? He hasn't called me out of the blue in eleven years. The last time I spoke to him was a couple of years ago, when I rang him up to try to appease him, and he clearly did not want to talk to me. Why is he calling me now, and so insistently, when I'm in no mood to talk to him? I refused to answer, but he kept ringing desperately over and over again. Finally, he gave up. Later that evening, I again became privately angry at the horrible crazy-making at work. And again, I had the same thought. Death or bodily harm would be a mercy for the quasi-prostitute. The right way to destroy her is to expose her massively for what she is. And again, no sooner did I have the thought then her husband rang again, over and over, in a kind of panic. Again, I refused to answer, and a couple of minutes later he again gave up. It all seemed bizarre at the time, but not two weeks later, all became clear at last, nightmarishly clear. As for my trusted pal, the monster, I spoke to him a couple of days later, by which point I had privately become very angry, though in hindsight not nearly angry enough, certainly nowhere near as angry as I am today. It was clear to me then that the mobbing was torturing me, though it was evidently not clear to him, because when I told him I desperately needed to get out, he scoffed again, suggested again that I was being oversensitive, and tried again to keep me from quitting. More, he told me that I should just vent my rage, not in the workplace, but privately. Stop and think about this for a moment. At that point, I still didn't know that I was under surveillance, whereas he and a lot of other people did know and yet he encouraged me to vent my rage, knowing that it would give my snooping enemies exactly what they needed to make me out to look unstable. But the monster's most pregnant utterance came next, when I told him about the quasi-prostitute's husband's phone calls, and that I'd refused to answer them. In a tone smiling with malignancy he replied and have you considered the consequences of not answering those phone calls when i heard those words 
and that tone, my intestines seemed to start quivering. For the first time in the years that I'd known him, I felt that something was wrong. Or rather, my body was trying to tell me that something was wrong, and my mind was busy telling it to shut up, to stop being so absurd. Have I considered the consequences of not answering those phone calls? Then, a couple of days later, something horrible happened at work. Something harrowing. Something that finally pointed to him. To the man I had trusted for years as having been a key player in the nightmare that my life has become. I'm not even going to try to explain what happened. For one thing, it would require me to relive that day, and in my helpless state, that would just burden me with more despair. At the end of the day, I walked back to my apartment in a daze. Back home, I sat down and ruminated in shock. It would be many months before I could fully take in and understand what was and still is being done to me by these beasts, not just in those weeks, but over the previous decade. I'd spent years trusting a man who made me feel more and more confused, isolated, and subtly self-hating, who had convinced me that he was my most caring friend and who was going around behind my back, sabotaging almost every aspect of my life to serve his no-doubt well-paying masters. Now we can understand why he began speaking of my rage before I had any rage. Now I can guess at why he was encouraging me to vent it, to let it rip, as he would put it. Now it becomes clear why he was tasked to try to keep me from quitting. For the longer I stayed in that job, the more plausibly my enemies could argue in court that I was never blacklisted, that I am not a target, and that I would have to be clinically delusional to think so. In case it isn't obvious, that nightmarish game is still being played against me today. I wonder how anyone can think that a person can survive this indefinitely. In all my life, I don't think I've yet encountered a work of literature or of cinema that even comes close to representing a conspiracy this monstrous. Nothing in Shakespeare, nothing in the Bible. Something like this monster's character is found in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, in the person of Grima Wormtongue. But that representation is shallow, and by using the element of magic, the author cops out of the hard work of imagining treachery in all its concrete detail. Cops out of actually having to tell a story, the kind that might have saved a gullible fool like me. But then again, 
Probably not. Because for me, and probably for everyone else, stories don't work that way. For try as it may, a story can't teach as if preparing you for a test. Instead, as Robert Frost once suggested, it can only help you recognize in hindsight, help you understand why you failed the test. Anyway, I still can't think of a work of art that presents the hard reality of evil of this depth and scale. I brooded on my growing horror for the whole of that evening. At one point, I said to myself, Betrayed by... And then I said his name, the name of the monster. Betrayed by the monster. I still had not realized that my apartment was under surveillance. Until, after another day or two, the campaign exploded to a simply unimaginable level of horror. The mobbing that until then was confined to my division of the corporation spilled out into the city and followed me wherever I went. Ordinary citizens in the street and in the shops were now clearly being poisoned against me and were treating me as if I were the monster. They had absolutely no interest in asking me any questions, not about myself, nor about the history of the problem. I am simply not a human being to them, only a monster who should be terrorized, preferably to suicide. At first, it is agents of the corporation who gangstalk me, but a little later, particularly after experiences with the TSA, it becomes horrifyingly clear that the government is now in on it, too. And the stalkers and the vilification would later follow me from this city to others I visited. Pedestrians who pass me in the streets become gawkers, barely able to suppress their hysteria. They look at me as if I were Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Kaczynski. Not a single one of them shows even an inkling that there might be another side to whatever screamingly lurid story is being fed to them. Not a single creature in the city wants to ask me any questions. Not a single creature. I immediately try to get lawyers, but they too drop away from me as if I were the plague. And since this piece is about the nasty smiles of a Maynellian holocaust, I'll add that I heard those smiles, rabid smirks of malice, in the voices of one or two of those lawyers. Not a single creature in the city wants to ask me any questions. Not a single creature understands that a horrendous crime, a crime comparable to one against humanity, is being committed against me 
and that they, however many thousands they are, are abetting and magnifying it, instead of rallying with rage to punish the miscreants. Not a single creature. They look as if they either want to kill me or spit on me or run away from me. Not a single one of them wants to get to know me, to get to know who I am and what's been done to me. A few days of this holocaustic insanity is all it took for me to decide that I had to call the monster and say whatever I could say to calm the hysteria down. When he answered the phone, he was audibly shaking with fear and embarrassment. That's when I realized that when I said, betrayed by, and then said his name, in the privacy of my apartment, I was overheard by eavesdroppers who promptly informed him that I was onto him. At the beginning of that conversation, he was so mortified that he could barely speak, and then only in the tones of an infant who's been found out. I realized soon enough that I shouldn't be too quick to end our relationship, because speaking to him while under surveillance may be my only way to exert some kind of positive influence on the situation. I have to add that simply recalling this period in the month of December 2012 is making my body shudder again with horror. But the situation didn't get better. Neither the gang stalking nor the hysteria in the workplace, which had become volcanic, showed any sign of abating. So a few days later, I called him again, this time to confront him. But this time, his voice was calm and confident. Perhaps by then the government had reassured him that it won't allow me to sue, as indeed it hasn't. I told him about what was happening outside in the streets, about the stalking, the scandalized looks, the hysterical body language. Although he obviously couldn't say so, he already knew about them, as my perps were keeping him in the loop behind my back. He told me he was worried about how much I'm isolating myself. Looking back on that comment now leaves me dumb with indignation. After all, it is they who have spent years poisoning my name behind my back, with his help, and now clearly with the help of the state. It's been documented over and over again, as if documentation were needed, that such campaigns, whether on a small or a large scale, isolate their victims, that the victims often voluntarily exclude themselves, and that many people, including so-called mental health professionals, as if they were needed, will actively counsel the victims to isolate or to remove themselves from such obviously dangerous situations. Being a fool 
I didn't isolate myself anywhere near enough. But because this monster is a colleague of Satan, he gets to reverse cause and effect and point the finger at me as the cause of my own problems because he says I'm isolating myself. Where has God gone? Why is God so delinquent about the moral duty to deport such creatures to burning hell? Then, typically, he tried to gaslight me into believing that what was happening around me was not happening that the hysteria that has suddenly started raging around me even outside the workplace is simply a figment of my imagination. Anxiously and musically, he pleaded, Can I persuade you that you're being paranoid? I said no, firmly. And why shouldn't I? Although I still didn't know, indeed to this day still do not know exactly what is being said about me, it's screamingly obvious that it's damaging, defamatory, vilifying, and terrifying. An entire city is convulsed with hysteria. Take, for example, a then-recent visit of mine to a café, when the very nervous barista, whom I'd never met before, asked for my name to write it on my order, as if he didn't already know my name, and then suddenly blurted out, Now you're not going to hurt me if I call you Tony, are you? Why would anyone ascribe to my paranoia such remarkable giveaways? Or the many other never-ending gestures of fear, which began all of a sudden right after I became angry in the privacy of my bugged apartment? They, they continue until today, by the way. Just a couple of days ago, I entered a cafe full of one-person tables, all of which were taken, except for one, which I then took, at which point the guy at the table next to me, obviously afraid of me, promptly left for another one that had just opened up. After more than ten years of gaslighting and two years of holocaustic ersetzung, this society still has the audacity to regard me as the problem. His changing tables upset me so much that I couldn't concentrate on the work I was there to do. And what will upset me more, of course, is if my perps now are arranged to discredit what I've just said by, say, having people cozy up to me in public to make some kind of show of not fearing me. Anyway, I then came out and asked the monster, flat out, if he had been talking to anyone about me behind my back. It is indescribably painful for me to recall this moment, and others like it. With him and with others, I trusted disastrously. The treachery that came out in them has the quality of a strange kind of screaming and makes me feel as if I'm going to throw up my guts. Of course, he denied it, but I wish I could recreate for this recording the hideously lying tone 
in his voice. As if that were not enough, his voice then darkened with menace as he said to me, I worry about you, Anthony. Two full years later, these five words still reverberate in my ears. They may be the most frightening I've ever heard. I worry about you, Anthony. It was the first, but not the last, time I was threatened with psychiatric retaliation. My father hinted at the same around May of 2013, a month or two after he realized I could blow the whistle on the family's history of abuse. And a civil liberties attorney intimidated me in the same way in 2014, when I approached him for help with this Holocaust. Although I'd never met him before, he instantly recognized me by sight, as so many others do in this city, and he wanted to get rid of me as quickly as possible. After conceding that he had already heard from other victims about the stalking and psychological terrorism I was suffering, he suggested that I was clinically paranoid and should get diagnosed by a psychiatrist, by the government's psychiatrist, no less. It's now clear that his civil liberties office is nothing more than a government front. Have I considered the consequences of not answering those phone calls? How could I consider the consequences when they were not even imaginable? How was I supposed to know that the country has an in-crowd, an ivy class that can subvert everything, absolutely everything, all laws, rules, and legal rights and procedures, and that can cover it all up with threats, gag orders, and psychobabble? How was I supposed to know that a decade ago this country quietly morphed into a hideous cross between Stasi East Germany and apartheid South Africa? By definition, a conspiracy is not supposed to be known. Indeed, it is still not supposed to be known. And even though it would save my life and those of other innocent whistleblowers and would-be litigants, the public at large is committed to keeping it unknown, or at least unaired. Some of them smile about it invidiously. When are they going to wake up and realize that these things could be done to them one day, or to their children? When are they going to grow up and understand that the only way to stop holocausts is to inflict mega-holocausts on scrofulous leaders. Those would be consequences worthy of the name. What's being done to me is hardly a consequence, and more like a program of insanity. Whether anyone likes it or not, because everyone is agreeing to cover this up, everyone is now suffering consequences, at least psychological ones whether or not they care to admit it to themselves. 
and whether or not they try to cover up their shame with shamelessness, as these two girls in this cafe think they're doing, by smiling like damned villains, to borrow the words of Hamlet, another target whose mind was pushed to the brink, not so much by the crime as by all the dishonesty afterwards. How much a nunnery would help these girls and us. It has been difficult for me to write up the text of this recording. Very difficult. Every time I sat down to write and relive the events I've recounted, shock, rage, and despair would surge up even more and cripple me even more. I am re-traumatized by this Holocaust every morning that I wake up to it, every time I force a smile for fear of being punished for not playing along. And perhaps more than any other time, every moment that I spend outside watching people refuse to become incensed by the massive discrediting of me, refuse to scream out for harrowing punishment. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.